Welcome to Phrenesis, a show dedicated to issues in political philosophy. Each episode will take a close look at important essays and ideas in political and social thought, linking them to historical and contemporary debates, which is to say, finding where they are discussed in the footnotes to Plato. So, welcome everyone to another episode of the Phrenesis podcast. Uh, tonight, we have a wonderful guest uh, with Micah Meadowcroft uh, joining Will and I. Micah, want to tell us uh, what essay it is you chose to read with us and, and why this one stood out to you? Sure thing, of course. Uh, first off, thanks for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. Uh, I chose or suggested The Lost Tools of Learning by Dorothy L. Sayers. She presented it in Oxford in 1947 as a paper talk or like reading her paper. And I chose it because classical education uh, is as a movement, an education movement in America really traces its uh, origins to this paper. And my parents were and are deeply involved in the classical education movement in the private religious school context, but it's now spread, of course, into homeschooling and charter schools. And it's a really interesting phenomenon. And so I thought this would be a fun place to share uh, my passion for that and my passion for Dorothy Zares. I've always been a fan of hers. Um, people say that if she hadn't been a woman, she'd have been an inkling, uh, that she was friends with all that set back in the day. So Tolkien and Lewis and Charles Williams and all the rest uh, but she wasn't in the old boys club and uh, she had a fascinating career and I think she's a really incisive thinker and it's a shame that she's not as well known as she could be. Um, she wrote mystery novels and uh, they were quite successful on both sides of the pond, but Agatha Christie supplanted her and became the queen of crime. So for a little while uh, there was a reason why everyone knew who Dorothy Sayers was, but uh, now very few people do unless they're involved in classical education, in which case this is the essay that they know. Well, it's interesting because we, uh, I mean, one of the things she's particularly attentive to, and, uh, you know, this is the age of totalitarianisms, is being able to recognize propaganda for what it is, or, uh, you know, advertisement, which is maybe a more subliminal form against of that. And we, um, it's, it seems that we, um, we've put forward another way of dealing with that, which is to approach everything uh, with an extreme level of suspicion. Uh, you know, which is, I mean, to go through the kind of, you know, three uh, paradigms of suspicion. How does this person want to make money off of me? How, you know, this person want to control me or what crazy psychosexual drives is animating, you know, this person or something like that. Um, and, and um, you know, that, that seems more instrumental, um, you know, to me. But what, what is that miss that she's she's putting forward? And I mean, what, what I'm thinking of is... Um, you know, when she talks about dialectic, how that's kind of the movement of thought between, um, you know, between, you know, facts like you mentioned, between subjects like she mentions. Um, and she, she puts it forward, uh, you know, very instrumentally almost, but that doesn't seem to be the only concern here. And so do, is there a connection that, that you've seen in between her uh, fiction writing, her detective writing, and sort of this this lecture, her more academic work, uh, her her thought 
is there what's the relationship between her her liter, literary output and, and this aspect this lecture i think it comes down to her willingness to cross boundaries in her whole career so she worked in advertising copy she worked as a playwright and a novelist and and had to scrape together and live a fairly independent life for a woman at the time and that came out of she was kind of overeducated not exactly along these lines but certainly giving her the capacity to make this you know to give this talk to to write this essay um by her uh anglican vicar father and so she had gotten a very good education she was one of the first women to get a degree from oxford actually i'm not sure if she was allowed to get a degree she at least attended i forget which where it lines up with the you know women were allowed to take courses and do the full program but weren't being granted degrees and then eventually they were granted degrees i forget which side of that um aisle she ended up falling on but i think the connection between her literary output for example she was an amateur translator well professional in the sense that she was paid but not because it was her field uh amateur translator of dante and that was the big project of her her twilight years um so she's really this omnivorous thinker and as she, i really love the beginning of this essay if i can jump right into it in that she won't you know she does not apologize for treading on the toes of the professional educators uh she's just not going to pretend that she has any particular qualification to entitle her to give this talk except that she has been a child and has been in classrooms and has been taught and she has the metacognitive ability to reflect upon that and to consider what worked and what didn't work and i think that's a big part of what this is about um her interpretation of what the trivium is about and the kind of essence of medieval education that she's trying to revive is this shepherding of human self-awareness and the capacity for reflection and metacognition over time and 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 she says you know essentially it's that self-awareness that then becomes the capacity to learn to learn to learn is to know yourself well enough and uh your own thought processes well enough to then put yourself in relationship with the subject that you are studying and she's saying those tools these tools of learning are far more fundamental than any particular uh, branch of study. Yeah, I I think that that's great and she she really is an impressive stylist throughout this. Uh from the very get-go uh when she's talking about uh, other experts and and the sort of metacognition uh, abilities she has. The the prose throughout this is just so fun and light and it it's really really propels you uh forward. So I had a, I had a lot of fun um going through this and I've spent a little bit uh, of time teaching and in the first few paragraphs she picks out some of the great uh, sort of annoying uh, elements of teaching sometimes uh, but puts them out in in a fun fun way right she's sort of vicious isn't she I mean she's making fun of teachers in that in that second paragraph when she says one has only to look at any school or examination syllabus to see that it is cluttered up with a great variety of exhausting subjects which they are called upon to teach and the teaching of which sadly interferes with what every thoughtful mind will allow to be their proper duties them being teachers such as distributing milk supervising meals 
taking cloakroom duty, weighing and measuring pupils, keeping their eyes open for incipient mumps, measles, and chicken pox, making out lists, escorting parties around the Victoria and Albert Museum, filling up forms, interviewing parents, and devising end-of-term reports, which shall combine a deep veneration for truth with a tender respect for the feelings of all concerned. Uh, it's just, I mean, it's, it's sort of brutal and also funny. And, and, and I think that's very much precisely her essence in a lot of her work as well. Uh, she was somewhat a sarcastic and biting woman, but also one who was aware of that tendency and wanted to be winsome, right? <laughs> There's rhetoric. <laughs> she, she didn't want her message to be heard and she didn't want to be too off-putting as a aggressively intelligent woman. Yeah, I... That's a great paragraph, and I think you're right about the tone. It very much is, as she said, the deep veneration for truth with tender respect for the feelings of all concerns. It's 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 great jesting. Um, it is a lot of a lot of fun. The um, so you had already mentioned sort of the the key component of this is she's talking about both the trivium and quadrivium as being. <clears throat> The, the fundamental basis for what she considers the, the good education of, of the Middle Ages. And in, in the broadest strokes, why, why is that? What's the value of the trivium and quadrivium as she, as she presents it? Well, she lists the quadrivium for us, which if I'm, let's test myself off the top of my head, it's mathematics, astronomy, music, and I think poetry. Uh, but the, she sets that aside almost immediately. Because in her mind, the multiplication, those are subjects. And that is an er those are areas in which we may very well now know more because of modern science and the Cartesian project or the Baconian project than the high middle ages did. But the thing she's trying to resurrect is the trivium, which is grammar, dialectic, and rhetoric. And she presents it not just as the thing that the medievals, and this is the scholastic project, this is the schools, is not just the thing that they did first, but that it was preparatory, that by studying grammar, dialectic, and rhetoric formally, and by letting those saturate their early studies and define those early studies, they were then prepared to have a certain cast of mind as they ventured into particular subjects. And it's her concern that we have, in some sense, she's making a civilizational judgment that we live in a world that owes the best parts of it to minds that were formed by a awareness of the grammar of things, which is the stuff, the, the, the sheer material of things. And she means it in its most basic sense, it is language. And it's, it's language in the broadest sense, and then it's a specific language. Usually it's Latin, um, but it becomes then the foundational syntactical framework on which everything else is hung. And then the, after grammar, there's the dialectic, which is this process of true um, consideration of logical deduction and induction, you know, fallacious and rational um, processes of conversation. And it's that critical capacity that uh, she thinks is, is kind of forming the sinews of the world that we live in or the parts that we like and appreciate. And then rhetoric, 
is all the beautiful the beautiful communication thereof. And uh, it, I mean, obviously, within the classical political tradition, it's the kind of facilitator, apart from war, of political life, uh, rhetoric and, and, and oratory, and, and just the ability to persuade um, and, and couch dialectic in something that is not just convincing, but compelling. Um, so I think in her mind, the concern or the motive here is that we are in overwhelming ourselves with subjects and leaving this behind incapable, making ourselves incapable, especially in a, in a mass society, right? There's some reference, I'm forgetting which page, but there's, a, there's reference to uh, Hamlet's words, words, words. We are now in an age of radio and newspaper and mass communication. And so in some sense, an education that doesn't start with language is ill-preparing us for being cogs in mass society. Uh, we will only be cogs in mass society, right? It's, it's leaving us to that position because um, actually in an information economy or even in the proto-information economy that she's looking at, uh, we spend most of our time, I mean, I'm sure you are in the same boat as I am where you spend most of your day on a computer screen and you read hundreds, thousands of words every day and you wish you were reading a book <laughs> and with that, with that, you know, level of uh, sheer, sheer word count. But um, instead it's everything, you know, it's frittering, you're just frittering your mind space or your attention would be the, the better word, uh, your attention away on all of these things. And so what she's concerned about already is that we are ill-equipping people for this world and uh, failing to communicate well. And in failing to communicate well, failing to listen well, failing to listen critically. Um, and so, so this, this trivium is a grounding in what is itself the stuff and logic of the Western world. And yes, it's very Eurocentric and all that stuff, but she doesn't apologize, so I guess I won't either. Just to briefly reiterate, because I loved her, her specific phrasing of it, the, the trivium with all the wonderful things you just uh, discussed, Micah, solves the problem she she sees in, in her contemporary education in the 1940s that uh, young people, when they have left school, not only forget most of what they have learned, but forget also or betray that they have never really known how to tackle a new subject for themselves. And, and so ju just right as you were saying, Micah, we, we have gotten... Or she observes that there's so much attention on these disparate subjects of learning, subjects that lead to a certain type of expertise, which she is what she derided in, in uh, the very opening uh, of this lecture. But the promise that by developing experts, by hyper-specialization, focusing on a narrow subject, the, the hope that people would then be able to recalled the way they learn things or remember the steps to getting there has been totally obfuscated and people aren't able to as you so so eloquently put uh think for themselves uh critically evaluate things they aren't able to judge books the quality of scholarship and they aren't able to learn things by themselves autodidactism sort of goes away if you uh have never learned how to learn. Even the kind of heroes of autodidactism that 
you know, we get to interact with on social media and Twitter, especially, I think, in my opinion, uh, often betray a facticity focus or a, I don't even know if I'm using that quite right here, but just they are in some sense stuck in the accumulation of very narrow um, knowledges rather than a kind of integrated and holistic prudence. Um, and I think for one really good line she has is, do you sometimes have an uneasy suspicion that the product of modern educational methods is less good than he or she might be at disentangling fact from opinion and the proven from the plausible? So disentangling fact from opinion and the proven from the plausible. That to me is what you know, we both, we, I bump into in myself, like, am I making a fair calculation of whether this is a question of probability or of fact? What does fact even mean? Um, and also, yes, where, where are the lines? I mean, obviously at that point, she's gesturing at what is a, essentially um, an incredibly <laughs> deep set of philosophical questions, the separation between truth and opinion and uh, you know the proof. What is proof even? But uh, I think at a very at a very superficial functional level, we know exactly what she's talking about when she asks. You know, aren't, do you sometimes suspect that most people are not thinking in those terms at all, whether something is proven or merely plausible? And are they inclined to, when reading something stated in a very kind of authoritative manner? to simply accept it as proven rather than to first say, well, is that plausible in light of what I already know? And is that a statement of opinion or is that a statement of fact? Um, yeah, I mean, everything she's describing as problematic in here or as dangerous has gotten only worse, in my opinion. And and, and her complaint about the, the barrage of information that people need to sort through and the complexity of society that they need to, uh, and a society based on communication, has itself also multiplied in in the in, you know in the eighty years since she delivered the talk. It's interesting because we uh, I mean one of the things she's particularly attentive to and uh, you know this is the age of totalitarianisms is being able to recognize propaganda for what it is or uh, you know advertisement which is maybe a more subliminal form against of that and we um, it's it seems that we. Um, we've put forward another way of dealing with that, which is to approach everything uh, with an extreme level of suspicion, uh, you know, which is, I mean, to go through the kind of, you know, three uh, paradigms of suspicion, how does this person want to make money off of me? How, you know, this person want to control me or what crazy psychosexual drives is animating, you know, this person or something like that. Um, and, and um, you know, that, that seems more instrumental. Um, you know, to me, but what, what is that miss that she's, she's putting forward? And I mean, what, what I'm thinking of is, um, you know, when she talks about dialectic, how that's kind of the movement of thought between, um, you know, between, you know, facts, like you mentioned, between subjects, like she mentions, um, and she, she puts it forward, uh, you know, very instrumentally almost, but that doesn't seem to be the only concern here. Right. I mean, I think it isn't, she has a more sophisticated account uh, 
or fuller account at the very least of the human person than a merely political creature who's trying to get one over each other, you know, who's getting one over each other. Uh, so the, the suspicion, the hermeneutics of suspicion or the couching things in irony that I think a lot of people resort to in navigating all of this information today is self-reductive to some degree because it is operating merely one level up from the propaganda or the advertising and accepts to a large degree the self or the individual being a consumer, a political entity, an actor, someone to be manipulated, part of a system. Whereas I think Sayer's descriptions of this awareness of systems and kind of technological society and mass communication, mass media and mass man is about getting not just, you know, behind the curtain, but actually recognizing that you are more than that and that there you are part of a world of much greater complexity, but you are the knower in that world. And so, you know, the, the kind of the core of the classical dialectic is Aristotelian causes and the recognition of those distinctions and definitions and the ability to sort of catalog the world and see its interplay. Um, and which if you're doing that effectively, you're always going to be in some sense situating yourself in it. And you, I guess, have a choice. You can either just be a smarter, more cynical, more ironic member of, uh, I, well, at this point, post-modernity and, and just see yourself as kind of the brain that's aware that it's being you know, abused from all sides in this, in this infinitely, or not actually infinitely, you know, in this complex system. Or you can reject the, the paradigm entirely. And I think um, Sayers, in wanting to go back to the Middle Ages with uh, an educational, you know, pedagogical theory, is also sympathetic to C.S. Lewis's argument in The Discarded Image that there's a way in which the medieval account of the cosmos, the medieval cosmology, um, is a more beautiful one and is a more humane one and isn't in, not in a simple way, not in a, it's a nice you know, fairy story we tell ourselves, but rather that we need to take seriously that they were very, very smart people, Thomas Aquinas, et cetera, who weren't, who were able to differentiate between um, a model and the thing itself, the idea of the thing and the thing itself. And so we get dismissive because we say, oh, well, you know, the seven spheres circling the earth, like that, we, we all know that's not how uh, cosmology works. And it's like, they probably did too, or some of them, certainly. And, and actually no one thought the earth was flat and actually no one just dropped dead at 33 unless they were in a war and got killed. Like <laughs> your, you know, <laughs> your presentism or your bulverism, there's different words for it, is showing when, when you kind of get dismissive of these people. And I think, I think part of, though it's not spoken explicitly, 
in this lecture, in part because she's dealing with uh, more cultural capital than we have now. It's still a much more uh, basically Christian society. And it's England, which is also just different than America. Uh, but she, in wanting to gesture back to the medieval model of education, is, I think also implying that there are parts of the medieval model of the human person that need to be retained and that they're tied intimately to this account of education, that we are you know, rational animals. Um, and then as she, you know, theology plays its part in, at every level here in her account of what this curricula, these curricula might look like. And uh, so I think in her mind, an equally important part to the rational animal being fed in a pedagogy is also the Imago Dei, that, that you are in fact made in the image of God and there's a, there's a place in the universe that you as a human being belong and uh, you have to be aware of that. And you're learning, you know, it's, it's in some sense your, your duty and your privilege to know as much about it as you can. I, I'd, I'd like to continue a little bit on that theological point. She brings it up at a few points in the, this lecture, but doesn't dwell on it so much. Um, and I, I think maybe it's an assumption going into this. Cer certainly another very valuable aspect of what she's proposing is both there's a sense of scaffolding where the trivium gives you the tools, the metacognitive meta abilities to conceptualize different problems and to change subject area, but still be able to address, uh, address the task at hand. But simultaneously, there is some sort of account of the whole that all of this study is pointed to. And she describes theology as, as the uh, uh, queen of the sciences in, in that sort of, sort of regard. And even if not um, necessarily uh, what we'd can not uh, Christian theology or I mean, uh, this classic account of theology is pretty wide. I think there is a deep problem in our education system and, and our way of perceiving the world more generally stemming from it that we don't think it's possible for there to be an account of the whole or, or there isn't so much. Maybe some of the reason for our, our increasing reliance on uh, expertise and very, very narrow fields of study is we don't see the way one domain links, even if only analogously to another domain and aren't able to take that holistic view view to human life, which I, I think is a, a concerning uh, degradation since, since uh, this was, was delivered. Right. And of course, as I think you're probably partly working out of, I mean, Leo Strauss is uh, notorious for, for reemphasizing the need to distinguish between and then, then reintegrate the part in the whole. Um, in some sense, I, I do think the main part here, or like the, the reason there's a gap, perhaps, or just an, uh, an absence uh, regarding that specific question is the assumption of a Christian worldview. Um, obviously, by using the term worldview, I've just stepped in it, uh, according to some some philosophical thinkers, that that itself forecloses doing true philosophy and actually looking at the whole. Um, 
And there's something to that. And I think she would admit it that in some sense at the pedagogical level that she's describing, which is essentially nine-year-olds through uh, 16-year-olds or something like that. I mean, a little earlier than that. So six to 16, we'll say. It's that 10-year period. They're not ready for this the careful distinction <laughs> between the uh, the frame, the inframing in which we might see something and the implied beyondness, whether it be the ideas or being or any number of things, uh, and whether it's you know framed by the political or framed by uh, the subjective individual knower or, or or whatever. So so I mean, part of it is just you can't have this conversation as such without giving people a toolbox. And in this case, you know, if you're describing the education of Christian teenagers, essentially, uh, it's going to look like a pretty normal catechetical process. And they can break into philosophizing in the, and sometimes it's, that's what they're being prepared for, right? Some, this is supposed to be, and one of the things I think is beautiful about the classical education model as revived in America in 1980 to the present uh, is it's a education, it's the old idea of a liberal education, right? It's an education fit for princes, it's an education for a free man, for everyone. And it's truly preparatory, not just to go to an elite university, but to just go live life. The expectation is never everyone's going to go on to elite university and graduate school. Rather, the expectation is you now, having learned how to learn, can be the best, most self-aware, and therefore the, have, living the richest life, the most examined life you can at your level and, and in whatever role it is that you find yourself in your community, whether that be, you know, it's the UK, graduating at 16 and just going and being an apprentice somewhere or, or just working or uh, going on, you know, going up, right, up to Oxford, up to Cambridge, uh, whatever that looks like. And I think, yes, so yes, there's a, there's a limited component to this, uh, but the logic chopping and the theological strictures are supposed to be then, you know, go and run with it. I'm sorry, that's not a full answer, but it's it's the defense I have for it. Does does that uh, you know as something that this is your that that you're passionate about? Um, does that does that worry you for its possibility to you know revive it in the 21st century? Is it that um, <clears throat> you know uh, she she says pretty explicitly theology is what holds all of these subjects together, um, and you you know you're you're climbing the ladder up toward it basically, um, and and without um, either specifically being able to profess that in education or teaching people who don't believe it in the first place, is there just no hope for this? Or um, is it a matter of degree where, uh, you know, a little of it is better than none of it? Um, what's, your, what's your sense of that? Yeah, so that's a really interesting debate ongoing in, I think, the larger classical education movement, because while the big push in this kind of 
very, you know, it's an anachronistic, it's an, an essentially anachronistic project. And where else, where better to have an essentially anachronistic project than the, than the United States? Uh, so the original big push was a bunch of small religious private schools uh, in the 80s and 90s. Um, the one I attended, K-12, was founded in 98, 99, something like that. And uh, so the, the energy for it at first came explicitly out of this sense that there's this whole, especially in Protestant circles, that there was this whole underutilized Christian tradition uh, from which to be educating and uh, and a kind of ad fontes back to the sources, you know, ressourcement, like return to the scholastic, because there was reformation, you know, there were reformed scholastics in the immediate aftermath of the reformation. This education model didn't disappear for a while. And, and so, um, then it really was, you know, theology remained the queen of the sciences. It was a restoration of a traditional order of, of domains of knowledge. And it was the synthesizer. It was the thing that provided the frame. Uh, but in the growth of classical education in America, there has then been the charter schools, which for you know, obvious political reasons cannot be explicitly theological in the presentation. And so there's a, there is, I think, a very lively debate about what conception of the human person, essentially, can you hang this up on a purely anachronistic attempt to reclaim the Aristotelian account of the human being? And how much of Aristotle's account of the human being do you want? Do you need the Thomistic scholastic account in some sense, or the reformer's account? Um, and, and I think that's, a, that's an ongoing question. Now it's sort of muddied by a lot of the people involved, even in the you know, ostensibly secular school. I won't say ostensibly, they are for all legal purposes, they're definitely secular. Uh, <laughs> but a lot of the people, you know, teachers and faculty administrators are themselves religious and, and are probably motivated in large part by a certain religious worldview. Um, and then the kind of additional thread in this whole story that's very interesting and, and I don't, know that I know enough to really tease it out is obviously the American experiment, ongoing American experiment with great books education and a certain kind of classical reclamation via um, classical liberal arts in the widest sense. And, you know, whether it's St. John's or Hillsdale or Thomas Aquinas College in California or, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, there's also this other project that's very similar insofar as it's a going back, um, but also has its own internal debate over the relationship between, you know, it's the theological political problem, right? What's, how is scrutinizing the role of theology in something already subjecting it to philosophy? Have you in practice already set yourself up as a philosopher above, above revelation? Uh, is there a way to scrutinize the domain of revelation, like the, the, the true breadth um, and comprehensiveness of revelation from within, right? Can you still be subject to it and critical 
is that are you in some sense in a place of contradiction? Um, I mean, these are these are live questions still, and uh, what is the relationship between you know the classic question Athens and Jerusalem? Uh, and so they those two stories are now feeding into each other a lot because you know products of classical educations at the K through 12 level go on to schools that are attempting, you know, colleges that are attempting to do this classical liberal arts thing or this great books education, whether it be a Mortimer Adler traced thing or a, a newer revival. Uh, and, and so, yeah, it's all, it's all bound up in each other. Well, it's funny because with those, with those colleges, if you haven't done that, um, you know, Sayers would say tough, it's too late. Um, like you missed your window, right. Uh, to trying to do this at 18 is, um, you're already, uh, you know, modernity or whatever has already infected the way that you're thinking. That's why we have to do it from, from nine to sixteen and start with the trivium, right? Well, she would say you have more to unlearn. You're gonna have a harder time, right? <laughs> uh, I, I'm not sure she would say it was impossible. I think I think you can still achieve. Because I mean, she's towards the end of the of the lecture. She essentially concedes that, of course, there have been long you know overhangs even as this model died as a coherent thing that that there have been people who understood who who had learned how to learn and were learning in their own ways uh it's just that this in her mind provides this very coherent and easy way to think about it and it's a super synthetic project right because this i don't know the 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 boy's going to a town grammar school to learn Latin and arithmetic in 16th or 15th century England. Uh, I don't think the classroom is going to look anything like what she's describing at all. And then their jump to uh, dialectic and the rhetoric is not going to have any of these clean lines. So, I mean, she is alighting that this is also innovative on her part, right? It's both, it's both a throwback and a new product being offered um, in part correcting the educations that she's seeing around herself, uh, the education she presumably got her, you know, I, I think she studied Latin as a child. I think her dad, her father taught her that. So I, I think it's, it's uh, for rhetorical purposes. I mean, as you said, stylistically, it's a delight. She's very, very, rhetorically controlled. She knows exactly what she's doing the whole time and everything's very deliberate. So that's, I think, an important part of it as well, that it's a strange mix. You know, it isn't just revivalism. It, it's, it's, it's like architectural revivalism, right? You don't just copy it. You're using the new materials, but you're, you're hearkening back to something you really love and admire. To the style point, there's this one paragraph I'd like to go through that I just absolutely loved. Um, and throughout, she's got these great jabs at, as we were saying earlier, teachers. Uh, she, she repeatedly hits uh, the Times Literary Supplement uh, for, for being a disappointment, which uh, to my ears, or eyes rather, I, it's like, oh, no, that's that's a highbrow, uh, cross the uh, other side of the pond, good writing, uh, unlike what we have here in the States. And um, not to her mind, evidently. 
but uh, she she has this great paragraph. Uh, it is more alarming when we find a well-known biologist writing in a weekly paper to the effect that it is an argument against the existence of a creator, an argument against the existence of a creator that the same kind of variations which are produced by natural selection can be produced at will by stock breeders. One might find tempted to say that it is rather an argument for the existence of a creator. Actually, of course, it is neither. All it proves is that the same material causes, recombination of the chromosomes by crossbreeding and so forth, are sufficient to account for all observed variations, just as the various combinations of the same 13 semitones are materially sufficient to account for Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata and the noise the cat makes by walking on the keys. But the cat's performance neither proves nor disproves the existence of Beethoven, and all that is proved by the biologist's argument is that he was unable to distinguish between a material and a final cause. Uh, and that last sentence just uh, had me cracking cracking up. Um, you're, you're really right earlier, Micah, talking about uh, how much philosophy is, is hidden behind some of these things she's saying. Um, but, but also this very much is a trying to rehabilitate the Aristotelian uh, account of the world in, in way of con- trying to think and, and consider uh, consider the world. And I think that that is valuable. She does a, a great job of, of trying to encourage it. Um, yeah, Cat trying to play Beethoven is a difference between material and final cause. I, I just love that. Do you think the bigger threat she sees here is that you know, this lone biologist um, is making a fallacious argument or, I mean, to me, I'm imagining her giving this in a, you know, a hall full of people that each of them or the readers of the Times Literary Supplement who really get savaged in this themselves can't pick apart, uh, you know, this this terrible argument he's making. Um, because Because in a way, if you can't, you're just as susceptible to falling for bad arguments as you're susceptible to sophistry or demagoguery. And I think that's the, um, you know, there's also, you know, a political subtext to this, which is that this is the kind of education that makes makes a people fit for self-government, you know, able to make claims and test them with one another. Um, And I I mean, I would imagine that that's, uh, that's another... I guess, the sort of instrumental argument for this kind of education. Right. I do think, <laughs> I, I won't pretend to speak for Sayers' politics, but I would imagine she was probably uh, enough of a monarchist to not be entirely sure that self-government, government as in the American sense is exactly what we're, we're wanting to go for here. Uh, <laughs> but you still do need it for, for civic responsibility and just for general optimal function you know optimal functioning that's a horrible like consultant class way of talking about it uh just, just a, a good community right life life together uh we are we are the speaking animal and, and therefore this kind of linguistic sophistication and ability to understand exactly what you, you and i mean i mean that's really what these distinctions about causes in this aristotelian logic sense comes down to is that we have categories that we share so that we can be confident that our dialogues are accomplishing something. And I think one of the interesting things about contemporary society and the 
contemporary intellectual atmosphere, I guess, is that those who perhaps muddied these distinctions did so more knowingly than the rest of us swimming around in it. So I think you can, to, to, to run with the cat and Beethoven's sonata as an example, um, cage piano performances, right? Postmodern piano understands the difference between material and final causes and is playing with that. It is under, you know, it, it, it says, I accept or reject in certain ways the material causes of, of, of a piano composition. And in, in particular, I'm expressing my role as the artist to, to determine some these final causes. And, uh, and it becomes a self, you know, expression of the individual. And there's the formal and efficient means of doing that, of playing that game, you know, in because the, the, the classic succession is material, formal, efficient, final cause. And I think that extends to that same process, extends to so much of the world we're living in. And so you had a generation or, you know, a protracted one, probably 200 years of people playing with the some or another component of that, subverting things for artistic reasons, for philosophic reasons, merely for the fun of it. And when education in general is detached from those categories, we lose track of, or as a society, as, as, as mass society, lose track of what's been subverted and confuse the, the different components. So in the way that this biologist, in confusing material and final causes, thinks that a certain thing demonstrated about material causes implies necessarily something about the final cause, meaning you know God's creative intentionality and existence. That's classic. I mean, that's, that's what we're surrounded by as uh, in, in not having this, these categories, the shared vocabulary in which to communicate on these questions. Well, did you have something you wanted to say to that? I have a bit of a, a distraction from what we've been going on, um, which we can cut out if it proves to be unfruitful. Did you have anything to, to respond there? No, I don't. I, not really. I, I was I was thinking about that notion of a shared language, um, too, uh, and whether that arises from merely a shared education or, you know, also a shared education, but that requires a very specific content. I mean, I think I know what Sayers would say, um, but, you know, in a way, a lot of us, if we go through the public school system, get educated in largely the same way. Um, but it doesn't necessarily seem like we leave with the same vocabulary or something. So, you know, uh, maybe how I think she would answer that has been, you know, borne out over the last 80 years. Yeah. And I think it's it's worthwhile to note that our cultural vocabulary is changing so quickly in so many different odd ways. I think just the pandemic is a great example of how, how we're reconceptualizing all these different elements of our life and the way we discuss them. Uh, and I, I wonder if the lack of a shared, solid grammatical understanding um, allows allows for us to distort terms and um, 
sort of reconstitute them. The uh, the the digression I I wanted to go on a bit is I think uh, I find uh, Sayers diagnosis of education being focused on subjects uh, rather than the means of knowing or, or, or the this other structural element um, compelling perhaps for a generation prior I looking at <clears throat> older academics who would have been formed uh, at the time she's talking about and and formed by the people she she's talking about it does seem like um, academia and, and subsequently the professional classes ha- have taken this sort of very subject-specific, um, isolated, narrow expertise and knowledge. My reflection uh, of my educational experience and little bit of experience teaching doesn't doesn't bear that out. That isn't how, how I, I would consider... Um, consider my education to have gone so much. I look at uh, many other students who graduated with political science degrees or economics degrees or or whatever whatever subject field, and the subject doesn't seem at all germane to uh, the majority of their uh, uh, of their work, the the careers people go on to do. I I'm not sure the subject matters so much in the way she implies and I'm I'm curious if there is a different sort of thing that that we're learning through schools rather than um I mean I'll just come out with it I guess rather than being taught how to think perhaps we're being taught more to just follow follow instructions thinking of most of my public high school career being given instructions on how to write an essay how to do whatever assignment and regurgitating uh, the facts that were given to me in the specific order that was requested. I mean, filling out forms seems more constitutive uh, of um, education than learning about a subject at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's exactly right. I think that the things we associate with intelligence and success right now are the navigation of complex systems, but not the understanding of them necessarily that our elite culture is largely based on more efficient following of certain tracks and trajectories that are set by the the structures of of our society and that yes the kind of thinking that people are learning or, or say they're learning in their, in the best of kind of the contemporary education model really comes down to identification of what's wanted by the power structures, right? So, so it's a, it's a hyper-socialized form of education and form of knowledge because so much is dependent on being able to intuit what the builder of the system that you of the maze that you find yourself in wanted from you actually right and and like the person who really you know obviously you can just you can just follow the directions more fat you know more quickly than your peer but you could also 
I think the kind of flashes of celebrated brilliance that we see in contemporary academia or in just general society, the people who are celebrated as being really exceptional, what they're actually demonstrating is, is a really, really high sensitivity to the social expectations that they are under. And they may be finding shortcuts in kind of the latter in large part because they're seeing the status components behind it or the personal power game elements behind it, right? They're, they're just better understanding how much of it is just run a maze and, 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 and found that like if you hop this wall, then you've just skipped a, bit, a bunch of left turns. Um, and that's a completely different game than learning how to learn. And uh, this thing that Sayers is describing is in some sense more connected to the, the natural maybe, or it's a bigger social framework, right? Because it's, it's civilizational. I, I, let me explain. I'm wondering to what degree what she's talking about and the reason it's so important to go back is because this particular core of what it meant to be an educated human being in the West is maybe the through line from Charlemagne's educational reforms to World War I, right? I mean, I mean I'm going to arbitrarily, well, I'm going to show my cards and just say, I think World War I's sort of, we're dead. We're, you know, the West is over. Sorry, we killed ourselves. Uh, now we're in something else. We're, we're figuring it out. It's, uh, we'll see what crawls out of this grave. But uh, we're, we're in a liminal and interstitial space, and it's kind of ugly. Uh, but I think because of that, because what she's describing puts you in direct conversation with, you know, 800 years of history. Uh, no, much more than that. I mean, like 1,200 years of history. Then you are not as preoccupied with the very, very immediate human structures, artificial mechanics of power and control that we're all constantly navigating. So that's one thing that I think is really promising about the revival of interest in classical education is it does seem like the, because you have less to unlearn, it seems like this sh easiest route to philosophic freedom, right? The, the, the internality, the interiority of the good man and the, you know, what's the, the, the father of the Timocrat in the Republic, right? He's, he just wants to garden and have a good son. And um, yeah, I think, I think classical education is sort of a cheat code for a certain kind of person and a certain kind of community and I'm working from my own example, like my parents were deeply dissatisfied with the world they saw around them and the way the education system was perpetuating it. And so this was a, this is a ticket out in some sense, right? You are building a community that cares about different things, that values something different and producing in your children, you know, you're perpetuating it and, and, it, and then it's, and then it's real. It's more, it's realer than real. It's your kids, and uh, and so it's a way of living 
somewhere else than the worst parts of materialist mass society. Because now, you know, it's anachronistic, sure, but I'm still in, you know, direct conversation with John of Salisbury reading the Metalogicon or uh, Dante is, you know, extremely, he can be really alive to you because in some sense you have a little bit, a little inkling of that high medieval worldview because you speak just enough of the language to talk to him, whether it be because of the Latin, even though he's writing in Italian, which is cool and innovative and different and kind of marks the transition from the high middle ages to Renaissance. But like, that's, that's the real, it's the ticket out in some sense. That's, that's what's amazing about it. So that, that, that implies a sort of um, conscious withdrawal, I, I guess, um, that, um, you know, it seems like the way out, I mean, for, so from her, from her to us, it, it seems like one thing you get is the acceleration of, um, and, you know, when you talk about these complex systems, there's, I think are formed by the kind of hyper marketization of everything. Um, so, you know, you start, you know, the, the labor force dictates, labor force demand dictates what education should look like. Um, and that becomes a rat race and you have to start earlier and earlier and earlier. Um, you know, and in, in, in some way, you know, honor or status is doled out based upon this. And I think that's really what we're going for. Um, uh, you know, that's what people are looking for when they do this. But, um, um, and, and, and so, you know, it seems like to, you know, insulate yourself well enough from, you know, what are really, really strong, you know, either financial or status or otherwise, um, you know, incentives, it requires a, a, a pretty high degree of withdrawal. Is that, is that the way that, um, you know, if the world is going to be sort of transformed or at least parts of the world are going to be transformed through this, um, you know, need it be through, uh, you know, pretty high degree of withdrawal. I, so that's, yeah, that's another classic ongoing conversation. I think in the immediate aftermath of this talks delivery, if you had had what ended up emerging in, what was it? Idaho, Indiana and Kansas, those were the first three big classical schools. And obviously, you know, in some sense, the, the English prep schools and the Northeast, the upper Northeast American prep schools never fully gave up on this model, but it became, as you're saying, detached from the tradition, right? It became a status thing separate from this particular coherent model of the human person. Um, so I think if you'd had this revival in the immediate aftermath, sort of contemporaneously to the first push for adult continued education, great books, you know, Adler, Adler stuff and things like that, um, maybe you'd foreclose the need for Alan Bloom to write The Closing of the American Mind, et cetera. Right, maybe we wouldn't be where we're at. Maybe you'd have that revival from within the system, right? The prep schools would all get better. They would be reconnected to kind of a pre-World War One, pre um, take your pick on which you know, pre-Dick Hart, pre-Bacon, take your pick on where you want to cut things off. Uh, 
then they could have just reformed within the current, you know, the existing elite structures, right? You just have had the same kids now with this worldview and they'd go on and be president and, and senators and, and governors and everything would be fine, business leaders, et cetera. Um, I think the fact that this happens, you know, that the mid-century more kind of, you have the emergence slowly of, well, you have different kinds of retreat, right? California exiles to Oregon, and and uh, like my grandfather's an example of that, where he's a Los Angeles professional, and then decides that California is going the dogs, and uh, and by the dogs he means literally like Satanists and you know serial killers, right? It's the cults, it's it's the weird eighties, etc. Uh, and so he goes and is a sheep rancher in middle of nowhere Oregon, so that my mom and my aunt and uncle, aunts and uncle can can go to a little high school. And uh, they can all just be you know, old old America. Uh, I think I think the retreat instinct, the countercultural instinct, has been going on for a while. And then and then this emergence of like, oh, now it's time to institution build. The fact that that doesn't happen until you know 1981, um, and then doesn't really get critical mass until like 2000 or and even now, right? It's still growing. That's we basically have had to choose build parallel structures, right? You're not going to win by playing the existing game because if you're doing this right, and this is, I think, a tension. So similarly to the religious tension, right? Can this be done separate from being an explicitly religious school? Does this have to be a school? Can it be homeschooled, right? Is there a difference between whether it's in a classroom setting or whether it's um, in your living room, so on and so forth. Another conversation is, uh, is it reconcilable with the current structure of elite signaling? And I don't think it is. I think if you're doing this right, your child does not have time to start a 501c3 in middle school. Your child cannot play three sports if they are also genuinely, you know, taking seriously, not because they're going to have tons of homework, but just because school is going to be genuinely demanding and in a really not in a just busy work way but in a deeply personal way it's going to shape them in a way that requires time and freedom to explore a little bit and to just read for fun and to take walks and to to think and so you and so much of elite education right now is a misnamed we probably shouldn't call it education but elite credentialing right now is built around <laughs> destroying every opportunity to think uh, and, and producing, you know, these supreme box checkers who have the perfect resume and are cutthroat killers and ready to, you know, sh shove the next person down, the person who's the next rung down as they climb into, you know, Stanford Law or whatever. So, and, and they've got it all planned out for, you know, a decade, right? They're, they're, they do not have a free moment on their calendar for however long. And that's how you get the, like, what is it? This, the spikes in high school suicides and like the Bay Area high schools and stuff like that. Uh, that's totally inimical, inimical. There we go. Whatever. Anyway, that's, that, that doesn't work with what this is attempting at all, I think, rightly understood. Uh, and so that does mean necessarily that there's going to be 
a certain degree of parallel institution building until there's a critical mass that says, sorry, we're too good, you can't ignore us. Uh, and so when there are enough classical school graduates who you know, don't have any complexes about it, right? That's the other classic thing. If you're in a countercultural upbringing, you will always, there will always be some percentage of the kids who decide that's the reason that they felt angsty as a teenager and that's the reason that their early 20s were hard. It's like, no, I'm sorry. That's just how everyone's life is. But you can blame, <laughs> you can blame your parents if you want to, like everyone else. Uh, so, I mean, until there's a critical mass of people who actually appreciate what they were given and are in positions of influence to just keep building those institutions, uh, I think it'll have to be countercultural. It'll have to look kind of like retreat, but we'll see. This, this suggests a kind of worry that I have, and I don't, I don't know whether it's justified, but um, so, so the sort of classical education, it has a, um, you know, a list of sources on which it draws their, in, in flux sometimes, but you know, one pragmatic justification you can give for it um, is that uh, it, it it gives you a fuller understanding of the world around you, right? People are, people are like it or not informed by the tradition in which they find themselves apart, um, and these sources inform that tradition, and so you can make better sense of the world that you find yourself in by doing that. Um, I guess one worry I have in this kind of you know, really clear split that you're drawing here um, is whether the world that we find ourselves a part of has now so far departed from those sources that even studying them makes it hard to make sense of the world. And that, um, you know, what what if all you want to do is uh, kind of understand what's happening around you, um, then then you're educated in these uh, you know sources that are um, you know inimical to what to use the word again that to what Sayers um, is saying and maybe maybe we're you know we're not so far gone as that that, that worry would indicate um, but that you know you kind of suggested that at World War One we plunged headlong off a cliff and we're dealing with something else now um, you know does uh, is and then I guess in that sense. Um, you know, is classical education not a uh, you know not 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 a, not a sense of understanding a world, but of the world around us, but you know, rebuilding it into something else, which I guess is your parallel institutions point. So the ACCS, the Association of Classical Christian Schools, which is I think the largest of the umbrella organizations for religious classical schools, they call their conference "Repairing the Ruins" conference. So they, they they're that's built, that's baked in a little bit there for that perspective. I think there's two ways to address what you're bringing up. The cynical descriptive way would be to say, um, we have broken down shared society to such a degree that everyone gets to choose their microculture and micro society. And that actually is to classical education's advantage because now you have space to you know, you're essentially just a full-time LARPer, right? You and your friends act like 1920s minor British aristocrats or smart middle, you know, smart middle-class kids in, in the British empire before it falls apart. Uh, and that's sort of the intellectual milieu you're living in, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you could say then, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. 
because there's nothing wrong with anything. You know, it's it's just one choice about which kind of niche subcommunity in global neoliberalism or whatever you want to call the the larger structure um, that you get to occupy, and uh, it sort of has a lot of religious and cultural and social things it's tied to and there's different reasons why people end up in it and, and stay or leave or whatever and it's just one more consumer choice amongst another amongst others but you're, it's it's the one in which you get to convince yourself you're not a consumer so that's one cynical take on it uh and you could just say then that there's no position to judge it actually there's nothing wrong with choosing to be as disconnected from the rest of society as you are or as you would be if if they continue to grow apart, because actually nothing's connected. There is no shared monoculture. It's just structures of money and power. The other direction I think you can take it is in is using Aldous Huxley's Brave New World as an example. Because I think the question, I don't think you were doing this, but the question could be read, and I think that's what this was what I was sort of trying to highlight with this with the first answer, could be read as implying a high degree of human plasticity that human nature is not consistent. And therefore you can in fact become so separate, even though, even though you're studying human beings, but by studying them in a different time, by making you know, St. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas more real to you than um, take your pick of 19, you know, theories, theorists from the nineties or something, um, or just the Harry Potter books, I don't know. Uh, by doing that, you can in fact be spending all of your time studying a different creature than the ones you live with and that you must somehow be fully detached. I just reject that out of hand. I think human nature is not that plastic to the degree that we do change. Uh, there are two mechanisms, you know, catastrophic trauma in time and divine grace. And so, and both of those are uh, ex ex explicable in their own way, right? They're both, they're both, dramatic and we have thousands of years of art trying to explain you know meditating on them but uh there there's still ways we know how to talk about that those kinds of human changes and so in fact human nature is pretty constant and so studying older human nature doesn't mean you're losing the language of the world you're in because it's mostly made of human beings and the things that human beings make and we make things in our image just like sayers would say god made us uh and so to go back to the analogy i wanted to draw with brave new world and Aldous huxley so john the savage grows up on the reservation away from this perfect decadent society perfectly controlled no to you know uh where the capacity for human feeling has been restricted and as has thought and he grows up reading shakespeare the works of shakespeare and so it gives him, when he enters this new, you know, future England under the reign of feelies and uh, eugenic control or dysgenic control in different directions, uh, he in no way is at a loss for words. It is spiritually corrosive. It ends up driving him to suicide. Sorry, listeners, if you haven't read the book, it's still worth reading. Um, the spoilers thing is fake. You're allowed to read things you know the ending of. It's not, it doesn't actually ruin stuff if you're reading, reading. Um, <laughs> but he, 
Shakespeare gives him all the language he needs to understand this world that he's in. It overwhelms him because he doesn't have the benefit or the damage of the drugs and the conditioning that make it bearable for everyone else. Um, it drives him to despair and to suicide, but it in no way obscures what he's seeing. He's not lost. He is simply alienated. And I think that's the real danger. Um, insofar as on the individual level, done right, a classical education in the present day should be in some sense profoundly alienating because it exposes the arbitrariness, the cruelty, the ugliness of so much of our society. Now, it also ought to give you the vocabulary to see the moments of beauty and to be able to speak to them and to highlight them and to make more of it and to understand the importance of the little things and family and you know perm the permanent things, as Russell Kirk would say. Uh, but it's going to be painful because it's going to make obvious the just the lostness seemingly the lack of coherence the in, yeah the incoherence of of so much and and the sort of uh you know to borrow the heideggerian term and take it completely out of context you know you're going to feel thrown you, you, it's, a, it's a thrownness into into a a chaotic place like uh no longer you know, there's some sort of disorder here in, even in all the control, even in all the mechanisms of control. So there's one last question I uh, am going to have for you, Micah, and it's kind of related to, to what Will's been getting at, um, and that's going to be the, the future prospects of this effort, but I want to frame it first uh, with some of the things Sayers is saying. So uh, we mentioned her discussion of propaganda earlier. The paragraph is really wonderful. She writes, has it ever struck you as odd or unfortunate that today, when the proportion of literacy throughout Western Europe is higher than it has ever been, people should have become susceptible to the influence of advertisement and mass propaganda to an extent hitherto unheard of and unimagined? She goes on to talk about the uh, spread of radio making this effect even more profound. Spread of Twitter, of Clubhouse, certainly makes it even more profound. And she parallels this with a discussion of how government is increasingly done by committees and by and uh, the debates that take place at such committees or in public fora are increasingly less informed, are increasingly contrived, and people will come to a point where they're arguing about things that have little to no substance behind them. I think these trends are very clear in our own uh, day and, and exacerbated uh, from Sayers. And, and so my, my question for you is, do these conditions give us hope or, or despair? It seems like people are increasingly coming to recognize that there is so much advertisement and mass propaganda we're exposed to, that, that there's so much drivel in our public space, that we're arguing about things that hardly even have nominal importance. Do you think that's going to push us as a society to change? Or do you think the damage endemic to that 
is is too much for us to be able to to do anything different i think that the decline in standards and function and ability and the increasingly you know it's the cliche but it's pretty good descriptor like the sheep like nature of a fully integrated member of mass society as that goes on and we spend more and more of our attention and intellectual capacity on stupid stuff you in fact make the opportunity for i mean people are hungry for leaders right we're sheep without shepherds and that can go two directions the classic one everyone's worried about with good reason is demagoguery that mass society is in technological society especially with mass communication is especially susceptible to demagoguery and uh and demagogues and that is totally fair and true and uh, <laughs> i think i think as as the as the mass becomes more of more you know more mass like less differentiated then just uh figures of distinction celeb you know things that are flashy become all the more stand out all the more that's also an opportunity because if this is a serious way to recapture the liberal arts as an education fit for a free man if this is a way to go back to the worldview that built you know gothic cathedrals and this foundations of our civilization or the wreckage that we're in if this is a way to recapture the humanist spark of an erasmus or um a vico or a uh you know petrarch you have the capacity you know then it's an education fit for aristocrats it's an aristocratic education and it's being made available to more and more people which means that there will be people who are right you know rightly taught it's profitable to all but there will be people that it selects in some sense that there will be people who fit it even more than it fits them and are drawn to become the people we need in a representative mass democracy because they have the rhetorical giftings to communicate to those masses to have you know charisma the big missing factor in so much of american politics and why every time someone who has half an ounce of charisma walks into the scene we lose our minds and everything goes crazy uh because most of our politicians are ugly and fat and have the uh you know charisma of uh, the damp rag is the classic trope but you know and it's tired and i shouldn't use it i should come up with a new one but still like <laughs> they're not fun to listen to so i do think you know put not your trust in princes i'm not an advocate for political solutions in general i think cultural culture building is more important and that's what's happening here in that this can happen at both levels that that this can produce this education rightly done can produce local aristocracies of a sorts and we like you know we're we're an egalitarian society so that gets people's hackles up but you sh people should want leadership people should want people who are invested in a place and seek its seek to preserve it who clean you know who clean up after themselves and are thinking about posterity 
and caring for uh, their, their place and their people. So at the very least, insofar as this is a retreat to get back to Will's question, you should hopefully be producing in retreating revived local communities where people are deeply invested in thinking in humane terms about lived environments and about community life and building culture and traditions. And so we might see that. I think we already are seeing bits of that, that there are pockets of um, like revitalized, you know, renaissance moments happening in these little places that you could probably track to the presence of really, really robust classical education community, you know, classically educated communities and the various institutions, you know, churches, synagogues, et cetera, attached to them. Um, so that's one level why I'm, I'm hopeful is I think the culture building part will happen. And then I wouldn't be in DC if I, you know, I, I, I might overstate my, my disbelief in political solutions. I wouldn't be in DC if I didn't think they were uh, possible at all. And so that's the other side is we maybe are now producing a selection structure that can pick for the kinds of people who built the institutions we have come to take for granted. And maybe they can repair them because they are in a sense, yes, an anachronistic sense, but it's still in a sense being selected and being educated and trained up in the same language and framework and to the same aspirations and understanding of the human person as those leaders of the past were. Now, education is not, I mean, like Abraham Lincoln did not go to a good school at all. He was, he was you know, horribly uneducated. He was embarrassed about it for the rest of his life, but he taught him, you know, he was an autodidact and he, but he was deeply invested in his own education. So, so the exceptions are true, right? Absolutely. I'm not pretending, I'm, I'm not going to pretend that this is what we've been waiting for if we just had the right stack of, of, of curriculum, you know, the right curriculum stack where we're just going to magically produce the president who's going to solve all our problems. Um, not at all. It does, it, you know, the original material matters. But I think that we have more of a fighting chance when we are educating people in into the conversation that our founding fathers would have been more familiar with, that the people who built um, the civilization that they were working, you know, or built the culture that they were working out of would have been familiar with. And uh, yeah, if we're, if we're going to have a, a soft landing or a true opportunity for rebirth culturally, I think it, involves looking backwards and that's what this is about and that's what what Sayers is is advocating is is finding inspiration in where we've come from and rather than kind of the scorched earth approach to history that we're so tempted to as a society well thank you very much listeners uh for checking this out uh for more podcast episodes and essays on similar topics make sure to go to thwart.org wanted to thank uh, Micah for joining us. This was a lot of fun on our, our behalf, and I really enjoyed reading this uh, with you. So thank you. Thank you very much, Brad. And thank you, Will. I really enjoyed our conversation.